You know, I have friends who are just so gorgeous and elegant, and they really are the same person inside and outside. And I thought, I want that. I want to. I want to know what that feels like. I want to behave in the same way that I behave with my students, with my parents, and with my man. And I didn't know how to do that. I had a lot of fun sitting down with today's guest, Elena Brower, who's a wonderful yoga teacher and meditation teacher, writer, speaker, and a real teacher of teachers, somebody who works with so many teachers to help them go deeper into their own practice and really understand and own and refine and share their true voices so that they can turn around and create a larger ripple in a greater number of people's lives. This conversation goes deep into her own journey. We were actually teaching yoga in New York City in very different places. We each owned our own studios at a similar point in time. So there's a little bit of inside yoga. And we also talk about the really interesting dynamic between yoga and business and how sometimes they work really well together and how they battle with each other as well. And then we really dive into her personal journey, and Elena has been incredibly transparent with some of her very personal struggles and also why she chose not to keep them private, but really to turn around and share them with the world in the hopes that she would both receive accountability and support, but also inspire others to own their own challenges and to step into the actions needed to change things. Elena also has a really cool new book that's actually in its fourth printing now, but it's coming out through um, my friends at Sound True called The Art of Attention, and it's gorgeous, beautifully. I'm a total design snob, as you guys probably know by now. Really beautifully designed. We talk a little bit about that and what led to that at the end as well. So really excited to share this conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. It's been really fun to see sort of like your path and your journey. Same. Taking this step even further back, though, for you, you started out as a designer. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about what brought you to that space. I, Since I was a little girl, I knew that I wanted to make clothing and design clothing and make beautiful things, mm. make women feel beautiful. And I had a knack for it. I went to Cornell University, and I studied both textiles and apparel and art history. When I graduated, they had such a great post graduation program, they had people coming in to recruit and interview us, even for fashion jobs. At Cornell, they were interviewing us at the end of the year. And a company called Burlington Industries came in. Now, this was a domestic textile manufacturer. They they were huge back then, right? They were like maybe the biggest. Pre-NAFTA. Right. Right? So it was, they were huge. Yeah. They came in and recruited, and at the time, $28,000 a year was an enormous sum to be making out of college. This was 1992. Right. I took the job right away. Well, especially in any sort of design field, which was notoriously, you know, like, hey, you have nothing. to start with nothing and Scrap. work your way up. Yeah. So I took the job right away, and three days after I graduated from Cornell, I started working on 54th and 6th. At, uh, so you're like building. in New York, in the fashion industry, straight out of school, yes. which is kind of the dream. <laughs> Ish. Right. It, it wasn't, you know, it was a textile design job. So I had the great blessing of being in an office with uh, a group of women who were all relatively my age, who were fabulous. Mm-hmm. And we were all friends. And we were all homies. We were all tight. Mm-hmm. And we enjoyed many years together. I enjoyed uh, almost six years there. And then I started working in the actual fashion business, which was clothing and PR and outreach to stores. And I learned the whole business over the course of about eight years. And then I started teaching yoga. 
So what started getting you interested in the yoga world? Taking class since 94. Okay. My boyfriend's mom took me to a class at Yoga Zone, which uh, was back Alan in the Finger day, studio course, on right. 56th Street, yeah. in the corner of 3rd, between 3rd and Lex. And I was smitten right away with the practice mm. and the teacher. And I just thought, wow, this is so beautiful. I'm quitting ballet because ballet was so hard and harsh. And Wait, where does ballet... I was so just taking ballet as a just sort as of a, a form of thing. exercise and, okay. you know, elegance. It felt really good, but the teachers were always very sort of strict and mm. it wasn't like a pleasant environment. It was a, I felt like I was being tasked to yeah. do it right. Well, that's sort of the reputation of that whole world also. It's like there's a militant element to it. <laughs> and I just had no idea that it could be any anything else until I took a yoga class. So immediately I switched my funds and my time over to yoga. And mm. over the course of four years, I took many, many classes and studied with a few different teachers. And in 98, I found Cindy Lee, who uh, started Om Yoga. And she offered me a place in her first teacher training at her new studio, which is back when 14th Street between 7th and 8th right, was, that was not a, like a nice a, area. Yeah, and that, I remember that studio was like a little second floor hole-in-the-wall type of thing. With Yeah, yes. I remember that space. She had a great bay window, and she had a beautiful space, but it was yeah, like yeah. a scary area. Right. You don't want to be there at night. Right. Now 14th between 7th and yeah, 8th is a, like Disneyland. Exactly. <laughs> but then it was scary, and I took her training, and um, I started teaching there. And then I moved on to the movement salon on 3rd and 17th. And then... Everything sort of happened from there. I met uh, a dear, now dear friend, but then boyfriend uh, when I lived in that area. And he offered to create a business plan for my, my studio, which was Vera Yoga, which was open for almost 13 years. And at the time, I was teaching out of the movement salon. I was having you know lines out the door, and I was making not really quite as much as I probably should have, but I was perfectly happy. Mm-hmm. And he said, you should open your own studio. And so I did. I gladly did. And, you know, I I don't want to say gladly. It took a little cajoling, but I did it. And it was the best thing I ever did. Yes. Like I said, open for almost 13 years and um, one of the best learning experiences of my life. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because there are, um, I know so many yoga teachers and also just so many wellness slash fitness slash lifestyle professionals Mm -hmm. who go out in the world, start to teach, mm. um, do extraordinarily well as teachers, and then start to kind of run the rough numbers in their head. They're like, wait a minute, I'm getting paid X, but I'm putting this many people in my class, and I know what they're paying per class. Why don't I do this myself? Yeah. And then turn around and do it, and it's a disaster. It's very difficult. Yeah, and I think a lot of people sometimes go into it not really owning the nature of the endeavor. When people ask me if they want to if they should open a studio, I always advise them not to. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, a part of it is just a challenge. I want to see if they push back yeah. to a certain extent. Go for it. But the truth is, it's it was a great learning curve. And to stay above water and to stay in the black is a is a big accomplishment as a yoga studio because it's very you're not selling a tangible good. Hmm. You know what I mean? The studios that do the best have retail and they have trainings. Right. And this is probably a longer conversation for another day, but the whole training idea, I was not down with training a lot of teachers. Um, I was more interested in training teachers who are already teaching mm. and helping them to refine their voice and you know, 
really consider what their voice sounds like when they're teaching, right. to just help them sort of elevate their level of study, both self-study and you know other kinds of study, scriptural study, Tai Chi study, calligraphy study, whatever you want to study, but studying things so that they can inform your teaching. That interested me. And I've seen now, there's a studio in New York right now that trained two teachers that went ahead and opened up a yoga studio. And the, the studio that trained them is now suing the teachers. Yeah. For competition? or for, Yeah, for huh. taking students. like, guys, we're teaching yoga. Don't it, do yeah, that. It's such... Don't do that. It's, a, it's like a little bit in, of inside yoga here, right? It's, it is such an interesting bizarre <laughs> but anytime I think you take a healing tradition and you mix it in with the need to pay your rent yeah. and then the need to pay payroll and the need to pay all this other stuff it becomes fraught you know and people have a lot of emotion wrapped around it. I mean we've seen in our history you know, yeah. in this world there's been a lot of scandal there's been mm. a lot of claims of ownership over actual physical positions, um, not just, you know, and it's, and you, you sometimes wonder what, what's behind that when, you know, you get the fact that we've all got to pay our rent. You know, if you've got a family, you want to feel like you're doing right by them and yeah. providing whatever illusion of security you can. But at the same time, you know, you got to keep dialed into that fundamental, like we're here because we want to make a difference in some way yeah. on a grander scale. And, more people teaching more yoga means more people doing more yoga. Very good idea. Raise consciousness. You know, what, however, you it can't be a bad thing. The, so, I think the general um, uh, paradigm and perception of what yoga is and the value of teaching yoga has to shift, hmm. so the teachers can start that. making more money. Um, I do think that there is huge value in the teachers who have studied for many many years, who are willing to share with folks their interpretation of the studies that they have done and help folks in their households behave and be lovely mm. with their families. I'm interested in that. Why are we not paying them more money? Why are we not paying school teachers more money? This is, I feel, at the core of what has to change. Like That's very important echelon of society. They should be paid well. They're helping us. They're helping us be great. Let's pay them. Yeah, I think, um, like, yeah, again, it's, I can't argue with that. Um, yeah. But then there's all, it, there, it gets so muddy when yeah. you, you mix in um, covering your bottom line in this. And you, we've both run studios for you know, long windows of time in New York City, which is maybe one of the hardest places in the world to run a studio. It's crazy. You know, and, and successfully, but, but yeah. even then, it's, there are sometimes extended moments of brutality yeah. when you're in that space. And there, there are windows where I had teachers who were packing the house who I ended up inviting to move on because I, I knew what was actually happening with them yeah. outside of that and just couldn't support the ethos. There's so, there's so many textures and layers. Yeah. The main thing is to keep the people close who are serving your community as a studio owner. No. Keep the people close who are serving your community and when you see in any way some issue of integrity, it's okay to let them go. No. You brought up the idea of voice, and I know that's something you're passionate about. Take me a little bit deeper into what you really mean by that. So base level, 
I see a lot of teachers who are teaching as though they're teaching to kindergarten children. Their voice all of a sudden goes from this, you know, conversational, casual attitude to, now, here's where you'll take a deep, and I'm not making fun, I'm just stating facts, really. I'm smiling because I, I know that so well. So, yeah. non mi piace in Italian, no liking. That is not working for me, and it's not working for the majority of students out there because it's not your real voice. Like, just give your students your real voice. Walk in. Don't let your voice change from the voice that you were just using talking to your friend on the phone a moment ago. Start to be more consistent across all the realms of your life, and that's when things start to get really successful and, and, and true. So what do you think is behind the the idea that somebody walks into a room and they need to take on the persona of a voice and an energy and a presence of someone or something else in order to do that job that, that we feel like we need to just step outside of who we really are to, mm. to do it. I think it's the same thing that plagues all of us, which is a lack of self-confidence. Mm. And the minute we can start to just own ourselves and who we are in whatever manifestation we're taking, then we can start to teach really potent um, touching classes without having to change anything. Hmm. What was your process of finding that for yourself? Because, uh, well, actually, let me ask even like an earlier question, which is when you stepped out onto the floor for the first time as a teacher, did you have that sort of like kindergarten voice too? Because cause I, I know I was, I was mimicking like five other teachers yeah. for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I had... Um, I'll remember th I remember the first time it, I was during my teacher training and I started, I had to teach one pose. It's like warrior one or something. I couldn't look at my fellow trainees. So I was, I'll never forget it. I was looking out the bay window of Om Yoga onto 14th Street, not looking at them and just going through the motions of teaching the posture. Mm -hmm. And in Cindy's crit, of course, she was like, so you need to look at your students. <laughs> I don't think I ever had a voice issue, although I did have a cursing issue for some time. Hmm. I was so enamored of Brian Kest. I would go out to L.A. a couple times a year and spend all the money I had just training with all those teachers out there because I knew somehow that they were the ones. Right, and they were packing the house in a huge up. way. Right? And they did. They yeah. all did. But Brian and Sean and Eric Schiffman and Max right. Strom, Shiva, right? And I would just go and take their classes as much as I could, study with them as much as I could. And during that time is when I realized that I don't, I can take on any of their voices, but it doesn't serve me to. I tried on Brian's cursing. I tried on Shiva. I tried on Sean. She was a little more, um, you know, she's a little more down to earth. And somewhere between Sean and Eric Schiffman, I would say, who was so allowing and so dedicated to making sure the student feels comfortable doing what the student wishes, what the student's body intuits. Somewhere in there is where I settled in and found my own voice. Yeah. So it's kind of just a process of discovery and trying on. There's an interesting parallel, I think, in the world that you came out of, the design world, which is that, you know, and the art world. You know, I'm a writer also, and yeah. as are you, in that, you know, we all kind of start out mimicking those whose styles totally. and voices and language and taste we adore. We're like, let me let me just really be good at that. Yeah. And then like the next person, the next person. And I think it takes years. Mm -hmm. 
It was to 10 really, years for me. Yeah. I mean, um, as, as a writer, I still think, you know, I'm finishing my third book now, and I'm guessing it'll be another few books before I really find my voice. Yeah. And this book was, was particularly hard for me because I had to write it in a very different voice than I've ever had to write before. Yeah. And I took it as a creative challenge, and it was fierce, but it was, I'm so happy that I did. Because for the first time, I kind of felt like my voice on the page was starting to get really close to my voice when I'm hanging out with people that I love. That's good. And that's never happened before. Oh, that's good. You know, and I was like, huh, interesting, you know. Started writing the first book in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I think you're probably right. You know, there's probably like a seven to ten year window to really find it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And since then, I've just been studying with some of the best teachers around, and they, they've all influenced my voice in some way. Now I'm being influenced by um, Yoga Rupa Rod Stryker, who is just, you know, magical, so sensitive in his teaching, and so uh, caring about the subtlest energy. So that's been a big influence on me lately. Mm. You used the word issue when you talked about cursing. So I'm yeah, curious why. Issue. why <laughs> Why is cursing an issue, at least for you? Um, for me, I've discovered over the years that it's every manifestation of me is very important. Everything needs to reflect the highest of me. Cursing does not reflect the highest of me. It truly doesn't. And what I can do is bring a lot of light with the words that I choose, and that's my choice. Hmm. Yeah. Do you still study with teachers who... Um... <laughs> I don't. Curse like sailors. I don't find myself doing that anymore. I feel huh. I have, it just feels a little careless to me because I know when I was doing it, it was a little careless. Hmm. You know, I think it's a bit of a space filling also. There's lots of things we can say in those 90 minutes or 60 minutes. And why don't we just fill it with the things that we want to push forward into the universe rather than the things that we want to leave behind? Hmm. I'm asking in part because I was known for cursing when I was teaching. Dude, high five on that. <laughs> no, I mean, not, that wasn't the only thing I was known for, at least I hope not. But I was like the guy who taught in ripped jeans and a beatable t-shirt. That's and, exactly like, what I was doing. Bombs. You just jogged such a memory. There was a period of time where I wouldn't wear yoga pants. I yeah. would wear jeans. Right. Specifically. I remember doing, what was, there was a magazine, there was a yoga magazine that folded, but that was really big for a while. Um, yogi, whatever it was. They wanted. They did this six-page spread on a thing around me, and they're like, "We want you to be the model." I'm like, "Look at me. I'm a middle-aged, like New York guy. I'm not. I'm not your model." And they're like, "No, no, no, no. The piece is like about you and this." And they're like, "You need to be." I'm like, "No, I really don't." Want to. I, so I said, "So I was like, I decided I'd be a little diva." I'm like, "Okay. Well, then I'm gonna show up in my beatable T-shirt, my ripped jeans, yes. and you're just gonna have to take me that way." And they're like. Okay, I'm like, oh, that was supposed to. That was supposed, <laughs> supposed to, foil to be it. like right, get them. So I ended up in the magazine with like all this stuff. But but it's interesting because that was my thing. But I would I remember I would curse a lot, and I'm I just turned fifty, so mm. I've really been thinking about um, the word significance and just how I carry myself in the world. Yes, and how um, how I want whatever ripple I get to send out into the pond to be received. And um, I'm not against dropping an F-bomb here, whether I'm speaking or writing, but I do it far less for effect and not gratuitously. I do it because there is no other word that can express 
the emotion or the moment. I mean, like an example is, I was in an elevator a couple of years ago in a hospital where two women got onto the hospital in, in this you know, surgery area, and one was shaved head with a you know bandana on her head, and the yeah. other was her mom, and they were both in tears. And the you know the daughter, who was probably in her mid thirties, just looked up at the mom and mouthed the word "fuck." Oh. There's clearly there's no other like if I tell that story and I then did oh. tell that story like I can't write another word to express what just happened like no. that was the truth of what happened. You know, um, but I agree with you. I think I use I use language like that far more gratuitously for a long time. Gratuitous is the right word. Yeah, and now there are moments where I still feel if that's the word that needs to be used, it's the word that I'll that I'll offer. But fair enough, it's far less often. Yeah, fair enough. My family now we have a we have a no cursing plan. My boyfriend mm. and I. It's very nice. Yeah. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. And you have a son. I have, now, I have too, a right? nine-year-old son. Yes. <laughs> right, and so you know, it doesn't matter what you say; it's He's all about what all. you do, right? He's seen it all. <laughs> I'm very, very honest with him, and he yeah. knows exactly when I'm working on certain things. He knows that I'm working on not cursing. He knows that I'm working on not yelling. There's, mm. there's things that I'm always working on, and he's. Yeah. He's helping. You've also, I mean, through the years, you've risen to become uh, a beautiful teacher, a, a strong voice in the world. Um, you've also been really transparent about some of your struggles, um, and which is kind of a segue from the conversation about mm. you know how you're how transparent you are within your family and with your mm. son. Somewhere you wrote or or shared or offered that you came to a moment where you realized that you were presenting as one person when you stepped into a room to teach. Yes. And and knowing that you lived as a very different person privately 
Um, talk to me a little bit about that. It was a while back when I just realized that I was putting forth this persona as a teacher that was perfectly great and fun and confident and competent. And I would spend a lot of time in my home life and my private life not feeling quite the same. And it started to feel... I started doing some fourth-way work, working with a teacher, and who saw right through me and made me feel really exposed. And it, that was the beginning. It took about five years for me to really see, okay, this is one person, and now there's another person here, and can we please keep it to one consistent emanation? How, how do we do that? And so I started, you know, really doing some observation of myself and when I was teaching what was there and when I wasn't teaching what was there and I started to see that there was a, a quality of attention and like a, a presence in my in my body and in the middle of my brain when I was teaching that was not present in my home this was even before Jonah and I wanted that I wanted to take the teacher the confidence the clarity the calm and make that who I was and I realized that I could just took some practice it took a number of years it took you know some real modification of who I thought I was and who I imagined I could be um, there were limitations that I thought were in place that weren't and by the same token on the other side there were things that I thought weren't possible or there were things that I thought were necessities that weren't. So can you take me into any of this in sort of more detail? Sure. You know, I didn't realize that I could be um, a centered and calm woman. I didn't realize that I could be a non-smoker. I didn't realize that I could be a, a, a person who was sober and clean. None of these things. I thought that was just going to be a part of my life forever. That was a part of everyone's life, wasn't it? And then I started to see that I can most definitely be a calm person. I can be, you know, I have friends who are just so gorgeous and elegant and they really are the same person inside and outside. And I thought, I want that. I want to, I want to know what that feels like. I want to behave in the same way that I behave with my students, with my parents and with my man. And I didn't know how to do that. Took a long time of practicing, getting feedback from people, asking my friends for feedback, hard things to hear, mm. having real honest dialogues with my parents that I never wanted to have. I never thought were even possible. Apologizing to my sister for being such a jerk for so many years and blaming her. You know? And I'm not saying that other people didn't have their part to play in the story, but it was, it's much more about a cleaning up and a moving on from behaviors and tendencies that are not only not yogic, but they're not really fit for humanity on the whole. And now I'm proud to say that I, with very few exceptions, go to sleep every night proud of my day and proud of my behavior. You know, when I ask my kid at the end of the day if there's anything that I could have done better today because he's the best barometer for me, it's rare now that he says, well... You know, you could have been a little nicer when I didn't listen to you the fourth time. So it's a series of things over time, and it's layers being peeled off. And um, I like to be transparent about it because I see around me the struggle of all these moms and 
lovers and daughters and sisters who are just, you know, trying to get by and make things good with their, with their relations, friends even, and having a hard time. And I like to be honest because it helps. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a tendency to, to place someone like you, a teacher, on a pedestal. Yeah. And say, well, especially when you represent yourself sort of in this you know, a certain level of energy and luminosity in the room when you're teaching and just automatically assume that that's how we thread through life. And very often it's not. Um, you know, those are like, that may be for many the one moment where they tap back into that space. Yeah. <laughs> in an odd way, I wonder if those who are drawn to sort of take their seat as a teacher end up very often... And I don't know why this happens, but I've seen it happen so many times. I'm wondering if you have seen also end up walking away from the practice that brought them, brought them to actually wanting to take their seat as a teacher in the first place. And then showing up in the room and teaching and offering all these ideas and philosophies. And um, But the more they teach, the less they practice themselves. Maybe because they feel like they've practiced when they're in the room with their students or they've done the work, you know, during that time together. And or they just feel like it's an emptying experience for them and they just drain and they don't want to go home and do the work. But it's been a really interesting experience for me to see so many teachers lose their practice mm. and lose what brought them to the entire pursuit of whatever, whether it's yoga or meditation or movement, whatever your thing is, your daily practices, deepen their teaching and lose their practice. Yeah. No, that is a non-negotiable for me. No. I wake up early, early bird before anybody else, right before the sun rises every day. And I sit when, this, when the sky is like that super inky blue. Mm. And then I start my practice there. And sometimes it goes for a half an hour, sometimes it goes for an hour, sometimes it goes for 20 minutes, and then I'm sort of done and ready to write something. I got inspired. But it's, I sit with myself every day because if I don't do that, I have nothing to say and teaching feels terribly draining mm. but if yeah. I do that it's like going to the gas station you know agreed I start my day pretty similar way yeah you mentioned that you ask your son at night how did I do today is that a sort of a I ask him if there was anything I could have done better uh, why that language um, a dear friend of mine who's a great mother and has a great kid taught me that that's a really good practice. I was in I was in a place of really um, being frustrated with my own behavior and not knowing how to stop it. And she gave me a few practices to alter the way I was showing up for my kid, and that was one of them. And immediately it opens up an entire realm of free speech for the child that most children don't feel, you know, and most parents. You know, my parents did not like the sound of that at all. <laughs> you know, when I told and it was like very weird. Like, why would you let your kid tell you what you're doing wrong? Who are they? They're only alive eight years or seven years, whatever it was. I started this when he was three and a half. He didn't even understand it at first. But, you know, the first time he really came through, it was we were in a, in a store and he said, well, mom, you know, it was he... I, I'm afraid to do this because now he's nine years old, so he's <laughs> old enough to be sad that I would talk about it. But suffice to say, he he did something totally by accident. 
And I was really extra hard on him, which I should not have been. And at the end of the day, he said, you know, you could have been a little easier on me. He was like four, four and a half. You could have, you could, you could have been nicer. And that was the beginning of the shift. Mm. You know, it took a couple of years. And even now, sometimes I have this real volatile streak in me that comes out when I'm, you know, four or five times down asking for something that he doesn't deliver on. You know, things like brushing your teeth and getting dressed and being on time. And um, I'm learning how to even just stay super balanced even then. And that's, that was started all from that question. And why that question? The gal who gave it to me was a, is a coach, one of the founding coaches of the Handel Group, which is, um, has been a pivotal body of work for me, along with the yoga and the meditation. You could call it behavior modification if you like. You could call it any number of things. But the truth is, it has helped me to stand in integrity and be able to look anyone in the eyes and know that I am here telling the truth. Um, and she was one of those one of those women who taught me that, and I, I'll never be able to thank her enough for it. Jonah feels like he has a voice. Mm. Do you do that with anyone else in your life? My man. We mm. do it with each other, yeah. It's very good. You know, he's going through a bit of a hard time right now, and he's, um, you know, to have the to have the capacity to look at me at the end of the day and feel safe saying, you know, you could have been a little warmer or more present or... I'd love for you to stop. The other day we had a long conversation about work curfews. I love my job. I love it so much, and I could work all night. I could keep mm-hmm. going and going and going. So now we've have, we have, um, given ourselves a 9.30 computer cutoff, 10.30 bedtime, talking, pillow talk, chilling. And, um, you know, he's able to say that without feeling like I'm, there's going to be some retribution, you know. I'm no. going to be cool. Yeah, no I mean, because there's got to, I'm sure some people listening are going to think to themselves, well, I'm going to be opening the floodgates here. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, so this is like a daily opportunity for somebody to bash me. If that's how you feel, truly, right. if you're listening and that's how you feel, know that to open the floodgates, quote unquote, it's actually a great idea. No. Because you'll learn all the things that have been pissing off your partner and instead of let it, letting all that resentment build up and build up and, and in five or ten years from now, being divorced, scathingly divorced, why not just talk about all the stuff that bothers you, that bugs you, in a way that's safe, in a way that you're not taking it personally, you're just hearing somebody's, you know, opinion of something at that time, and talking about it rationally. There's actually a whole sort of structure that makes it very safe. It's called getting resolved. And it's something I teach about every, I don't know, a few months or so, but it's awesome so perfect for having a good um, constructive positive beneficial conversation with somebody you love when it's you know feeling like it might be hard nah. what about the flip side um, you know, what about the opposite question you know what went well what are you grateful for things like that we Is do that it? at the end of the day too. Okay, that's <laughs> the last thing today I'm thanking you for doing the dishes and being so sweet and squeezing my ass <laughs> You know, because that's important. Those little moments are important. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, he I get he gets to thank me for whatever it is that I did. I helped him. I don't know, sort some paperwork out or whatever. And uh, it's a nice way to end the day. You know, to look at each other and say what you're thankful for. It's beautiful. That came from yet another one of my coaches at the Handel Group, and she and her husband have this practice for years. What can you be grateful for today? 
in me. Mm. You know, it's so nice. Nah. It's interesting because I think you know, gratitude has become really a buzzword these days, and gratitude yes. journaling, which is wonderful. But this is an interesting application of it because rather than sitting and saying, this is what I'm grateful for that happened to me today that I had some level of control over, it's, you know, you're externalizing it, yeah. um, offering to someone else, which deepens, you know, the connection between you and another person, mm. which is a pretty awesome thing. Mm. It's mm. a good technology, that work. Yeah. So you owned a studio for 13 years. Almost 13. Almost 13. Which is an interesting business, too, because it's it's weird to call it a business, but it, it is a business. Um, but it's also, it's a place of healing, and it's a community. Yes. So I'm really curious about something. I left my studio. I sold it mm. at the end of 2008. You, so, you actually sold it? I did. Bless you. Um, and I remember the last day, nobody knew that it had already been sold when right. I taught my last class. Oh, wow, weird. And I had all of my regular students come up at lunchtime and, you know, like out of Shavasana, just sitting there with eyes closed in meditation. And I got teary and I said, this is, you guys, I have to share something with you. You just took my last class. Um, but then what was really fascinating to me is I literally, it was emotional. I, but then at the end of the day, when I handed over the keys, I walked out and I was complete. Totally. Um, so I'm really curious about your experience of that moment of transitioning from something that was such a fierce part of your life, not just a business, but like a big, profound community. How Talk me through sort of that for, I'm curious. I, I've been asked this question a couple times this year, and I'll say that it was a huge relief. That's the truth of the truth. Walking out the last time was a huge relief, and I didn't walk back into that building for several months, if not over a year, actually after I left for the last time. And I did not sell my studio, we just closed it. Two of the senior teachers ended up taking it over a few months later and making it into another studio, which is great. The community, you know, while I was, while I was running that studio, I was also, and I've copped to this before and I will own it again, it's, I was very much about building my own life while I owned that studio. And I didn't do the best job of building the community. The community happened by itself, and it happened because of those teachers that were teaching there. They cared a great deal. That was not my intent, really, you know, consciously. I loved it. And I loved that I had, you know, really big classes, and that community kind of happened in and of itself. But at the same time, I was traveling several times a year. Mm -hmm. I was building other things. I was, you know, creating what would eventually be a really beautiful foray into a book, meditation courses. I always knew that I'd be teaching meditation someday. I just didn't know when or how. And the whole time I was really much more concerned, I'm, I'm being honest, with myself rather than the community. I don't mean that I wasn't as selfish as it may sound here. But I was just enjoying my life. I was enjoying being a mom. I was enjoying going home, cooking my meals. It was less about that. Um, that said, we never I never really saved money from the studio. We were always in the black, but it was never really a, a hugely profitable endeavor. We didn't have retail. We didn't do trainings. And there was a level of it being central HQ for me, but that was kind of... Where, where I left it. 
the other teachers have created a beautiful community. It's now called Twisted Trunk Yoga. Hmm. And um, it's right there in the same spot that Vera Yoga was. And, you know, that's their, that's their intent, which I think is incredible. Um, and while Vera was a family, I, I can't own that it was my intention to make it so. So I just have to be honest about that. Yeah. Um, and when I left, I was happy because it was more, you know, it, it, there was less on my plate and there was more time for me. I cook all the time now. <laughs> that feels really good. I'm much more close to home than I ever was. And I have a savings account, finally, at 45 years old, which was a long time coming. And I'm able to give money, not just time. I used to give a lot of time as my sort of charitable. Right. But now I can give money, and that's that feels so good. Yeah. So where did you move once you sort of left that phase behind? Like, what was the next adventure that you been building really over the last number of years it was more travel and it was more of a virtual community online that's what i've ended up building after all that it's a robust and engaged community of um you know seekers and seers and teachers and from the meditation courses to a website called teach.yoga that i started which is my gift to all the teachers of the fine world that we live in, wherein our emails are being opened in 70 countries. It's just myself and my collaborator, Michelle Martello, mm. who is uh, just a genius. She's a company called Minima Designs. She works out of um, Richmond, Virginia. And she and I have created this really beautiful platform for teachers that teachers write for and teachers read. And I send one email a week, every Wednesday morning. And I limit myself and the teacher's writing for the site to 300 words, four, five, max. And in that space, I'm learning how to speak with a good, clear voice, a good, potent, precise, concise message, um, and help the teachers all around the world feel like they have a connection to something, you know, that's, that belongs to, to all of us. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life isn't always perfect, but with Signature Hardware, it is beautiful. How do you experience the transition from spending time face-to-face in a room with, with a group of teachers versus building that community in the digital space? I have the best time. Well, yeah. I, first of all, I still teach weekly classes in New York. Right, so you get that. Yeah. Yeah, you're nourished on that level. I'm nourished and so are they, and I can't not do that. I have a lot of teachers that come uh. to my class, and I really feel very connected 
to my weekly classes and in a way responsible for keeping up with my own practice because that's where I get the best ideas for my teaching. Mm. Every morning I'm coming up with something else and it's not something that's never been done. I'm not saying I'm some kind of you know renegade innovator. I'm saying that because of my own practice, I can speak to details and clues in the body that other teachers will find interesting and then they can take one aspect of one minute detail and spin that into their own teaching for months. So I feel more than ever very connected. Then on top of that, the second part of that of the answer to that would be in the virtual world, I've made so many wonderful friends that I've always wanted to make and then we meet in, in real time, you know, live. And the connections are so fortified and so real. We've been communicating electronically for a long time, whether it's you know on some social media platform or an email. And now I have these friends that, you know, I, I dreamed of knowing, and we're buds. We're buds, and we can we can elevate consciousness together through the work that we do. And one of them, in particular, that I'm thinking about right now, her name is Carrie Ann Moss, and she and I we're just about the same age and we were being told on two coasts she's in LA and I'm here for years that we look alike everybody was telling me you know you look like Trinity that is one saying she was in Trinity in the Matrix right? everybody would say right. this all the time especially <laughs> when I would have my hair back or it was really short for a while and then she started teaching Kundalini Yoga and people started coming up to her and going you know are you Elena you look just like Elena <laughs> that's funny really funny we finally met after all that and it was over Instagram, as most of these very fun, cute, mm -hmm. of just hilarious meetings happened lately. And um, we're best friends. Oh, that's we awesome. We have kids in similar schools on co you know the two coasts. She has helped me so much. I've I've helped her in ways that you know sh she would never have expected. And um, that to me is is a hallmark of the virtual reality that we live in. That we get to build friendships electronically and then um if you will consummate them in real time and i have i that i have a sister you know she's one of my soul sisters all because of instagram like it's just so <laughs> silly and she talks about instagram as all of us sitting around the fire by the way that's that funny. was my point and it's funny because a couple of years ago i was pretty down on like the notion of what you were just talking about but mm -hmm. now I, I i see that as a beautiful progression totally um, um, I think it's so it's such a great way to to find and then begin the conversation, and then it, what's funny is you know, like you can have I, we literally at one point rerouted a trip from Bali through Australia because of a relationship that I had started like on Twitter to spend a week with a friend and family who we'd never met before. There you go. <laughs> but I do think there's still the real magic still doesn't truly happen until you know like you get to just wrap your arms around somebody. Super true. Yeah. This morning I spent, before coming here, I spent an hour at school chilling with all the moms down mm. in the cafeteria having tea, going over our highlight reels from the break. Uh -huh. <laughs> I think ultimately this virtual reality is so sweet and so easy to support each other and help build each other's communities and grow both literally and figuratively. But ultimately it's all turning back on itself and we're all tasked to spend more time in person with each other as much as we can in community together. Yeah. And so to that end, I, like I said, I love to cook. 
I love to have friends over. We have people sleeping over our house all the time. <laughs> and, you know, there, there are limits to how much you can do virtually. So I think there's a fine balance, and I think to strike that is uh, a daily practice. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's easy to get lost down that rabbit hole, and it's also easy to to start to lean on the digital space as less about connection and more about false validation. That's um, always been the conversation, though. Yeah, no, no doubt. It's just another, you know, it's yet another way to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's perilous. It's a very slippery, perilous slope. No. Nah. Um, you brought up one other thing too that that um, you've also been really public about that I wanted to um, explore a little bit with you, um, and it's when you said there are a lot of things that you want to change about yourself. You're now two years into a, a re- quote recovery. Year and a half. Year and a half. Um, is it really important that you're very precise with that? It sounds like it is. No, I think it's to be respectful to the recovery community. Yeah. Um, I don't take it lightly. So take me more into. Um, what you're, you're in recovery from and how it was woven through your life for, from what I understand, decades before. With the exception of several years around my pregnancy and giving birth to Jonah, I've had a pot addiction for a really long time. And I would, for the last leg of the worst part of it, I was just smoking every morning when I would drop Jonah off at school and I would drop my man off at the subway and go home and smoke. It was my time, quote unquote. And I thought I deserved it. And it was delicious. And, you know, all these things that I was telling myself when really all it was was some form of prayer to the highest part of myself to come forward. And when I finally realized that I had a problem, it was because Gabrielle Bernstein came through and we were having a conversation in person and she said, you know, Elena, if you really want to do your highest work, you can't be smoking pot. Like, it was just so obvious to her. I was pissed. I was like, that can't be true. You know, of course you can. Just everything in moderation, except that I didn't know from moderation by the end. And so I was lying to myself. I was lying to everyone around me. But when she said that, some little light clicked on, and I got ready. And it was within a few weeks of that that I said, Gab, I'm done, and I need you. And she was there. She was calling me and texting me. And for the first 40 days, I actually went through her book, May Cause Miracles, and did sort of a little piece of art or a still life or writing or some practice to go with all the practices in that book. And that's how I got through the first 40 days. And it's pretty known that neurologically and biologically, if you can get through 40 days of changing a habit, you can pretty much count on your body looking toward the new path rather than down the old road. And so once I got through those 40 days, I was, I was good. I was really good. And I still have support. Um, and now I have a list of about a dozen women that are sprinkled all over the planet who are also joining me consciously in recovery because of my uh, public sort of, um, you know, outing of myself on this path. And it feels really good. Why did you feel it was necessary to do it publicly? It was a great way for me to stay accountable. 
And I could see around me, even in my super close circle of friends, people are struggling with addiction all over the place. Not just drugs or alcohol, but even technology, sex, you know, negative thinking is an addiction. And I wanted to help demystify the process of releasing addiction and moving more toward our highest, you know? There's even a technology in that, you know, of getting support, of staying positive, of asking for help. There are not just the 12 steps, although I'm fully supportive of that. It's, it's, there are steps that we can all take depending on what we're addicted to to really help us move past that and, and grow. And that's what I was interested in. I wanted to share it because I really felt that there was a need to share it. And I ended up over the course of the first nine months of my freedom writing a spoken word piece that's about 12 minutes long and Wanderlust is going to have it up soon. I did it as a speakeasy fully from memory last summer in Aspen. It should be up soon, I'm sure. And uh, it was a proud moment. felt really good to tell everybody about it and get through it. Mm. Yeah. Is this something that you're also transparent on? And if this is going <laughs> too far, but I'm just really curious, is this sure. something that you're also transparent with your son about? Yeah. Oh, he's been there every step of the way. Yeah. He was the one that I practiced my speakeasy on, hmm. my poem on, every step of the way. He knows it backwards and forwards. He knows what um, addiction is to the extent that he can. He's nine years sure. old. I've explained it to him many, many times since he was about eight, seven and a half Seven, seven and a half is when I started talking about it. But he's well aware, and I've been very, very open with him. We talk all the time. He has questions about it. So what's this drug, and what's that drug? And I talk to him about it all the time because eventually he's going to come up against it. Sure. It's going to be in his face. Especially in New York City. <laughs> Especially in New York City. And he's going to have a real freedom and a knowledge of what everything is and how it impacts people. Hmm. And then he gets to make his own choices, as ever. You know, I think I've given him a good gift in exposing him to my path, and he's very proud of me. You know, that's the one thing that he can... He, I have a little counter on my phone. It's called. It's an app called Since, And it's like 400 and some crazy amount of days, and he's just so happy. Whenever he opens it, he's like, Look, Mama, you did it. You did it. So beautiful. You know, if he ever comes across somebody who's addicted or he ever sees himself falling into that rabbit hole, he probably will have a little more adaptability, which is a good gift to give to my kid. Hmm. And maybe compassion, too. For sure, compassion. Yeah. He knows, you know, it, it's not so hard for me anymore. I did, I also did hypnotism and I did, I took some real steps toward eradicating right. the, the, you know, the tendency and the, the sort of, quote-unquote love of the hug of the drug mm -hmm. um and now i can laugh about it because i know what it felt like intuitive uh, intellectually but intuitively it doesn't have a hold on me anymore um but he, knowing that i think he would see addiction with a lot of compassion now mm. which is good as you know for humanity to yeah. have a person who sees that you know you never want somebody to actually have to move through addiction and then mm. recover from it to, to say, well, that's a prerequisite to learn compassion. But yeah. any lesson that I think, you know, any time, any moment in time that we can increase compassion 
um, is, you know, it's, it's a good thing. Um, your, your focus these days seems like, um, it's really come full circle back to where you really started out, which is really helping teachers deepen into finding their ability to express themselves fully and then make a difference in other people's lives. And also really focusing on the deeply meditative side of the practice and where you focus your attention and then how that affects both you and the world around you. Can you take me there a little bit? That's well said. Um, That is what I'm here for. I realize now that's my mission. I want to give folks the gift of their own uh, attention and their own compassion through meditation. My teacher Rod calls it the the technology of unsurpassed calm. Mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> it's pretty great. And I feel strongly that t- to help teachers who are already trained, who are already out there teaching, to get more clear on what they're offering is a great gift to the world. Because those are the people who are really committed to going out and serving and giving it away. So why don't I help them? Because helping them helps more people more efficiently. I'm really just interested in making sure that I can reach as many millions of people as possible with, you know, this calm. And uh, that feels important to me right now. Mm, Why? We need it. We're we're really hooked into the tech, you know, and the technology. I'm saying the technology, the electronic technology is, it's just having, it's, it's having an impact in ways that we couldn't have possibly imagined. Agreed. And on one hand, we get to have this wonderful conversation. We get to share it with a lot of people who will be hopefully positively um, affected. And on the other hand... May those people then go and get the groceries or go to the garden and pick the food, make some dinner, and sit down with their family and turn it all off. That would be a great result. So that's why I think this is all very important. I think it's all just making people aware that there is within them a central headquarters of utter relaxation available all the time. No matter what is sitting in front of you, that's a good legacy that is um i want to make sure that i ask you about one last thing before we come full circle which is this gorgeous book that you handed me when you walked in the door i'm so excited (laughs) to hand it to you it it, it, it's funny because i'm i'm like a design snob yes same (laughs) i'm like you know what if it's gonna do it you got well especially with your background right it's like you come out of this world of design and You know, I see bad kerning, and it I lose oh, my kerning. mind. Oh, <laughs> like, and nobody can understand. Like kerning. nobody can see it. And I'm like, well, how can you not see that? There's that. Oh. For those who don't know, kerning is the space, the microspaces between letters. So, I mean, it's, this is beautiful, beautiful book called The Art of Attention. But it's not just a book. To just spend a few minutes sharing me what this really is. So it was, it's the effort and labor of both myself and my co-author, Erica Jago, who's a very gifted designer Mm -hmm. and also teacher. She and I created what is essentially a workbook for yoga and meditation for teachers and practitioners. It gives you five practices. One is a meditation practice. The rest are yoga practices of varying different levels and intensities. Mm -hmm. And each one has, at the end of it, workbook pages 
and those pages are scattered with quotes and really faded um, images. So you can work on those pages and take your own notes and use this literally as a workbook to design your own practices. We've also got in the book templates for using what Erica calls asana glyphs, these tiny little yeah, stick yeah. figures, right. stick yogis. And she put together for all the sequences, the asana glyph sequences in waves, three wave sequence. So each class has essentially three waves as we all know, or maybe we don't. And um, you get to put together your own three wave sequences based on what you liked and um, found efficient in the book. What's fun about it is that it's, this is the fourth edition of the book. We self-published the first three. This, this was an Indiegogo campaign. Originally, it was. Like it was back one in of the first 20, ones. 2012 or something. Yes. Like that, right? Indiegogo yeah. was like in their first two, three right. months. We did great. Um, mostly because the yoga community hadn't really helped another yogi kind mm. of makes something really incredible happen for the community. So it was very successful. We gave a book for every book that we um, got paid for. We gave over a thousand books to various charities all over the world. Uh, it was just one of the greatest experiences of my life to give those away. And then the subsequent two editions we self-published. And this is the fourth edition and Sounds True took over and made it uh, their property, and mm. I could not be happier. Sounds true. It's such an incredible company, yeah, and the, I'm in such. I feel so honored to be in the company that I'm in now, amongst the authors of that mm. tribe. So that's really good, and you know, I, ultimately, I think it it changed. If I may be so bold, I think it did change the way yoga is delivered via books. From that point on. There's been a shift in the sort of aesthetic of yoga. It's not just like a photograph and then some explanation. Now it's a real, it's an art form. Right. It's an art form, and I think it has changed the way um, the way we see the practice and the way we see our own capacities, both as teachers and practitioners, to have a book like this out there. Hmm. So, name of this is Good Life Project. Yeah. So if I offer that term out to you to live a good life, what comes up? To pick my kid up at school and to remember the soccer ball and take it over to the park and kick it around with him. To engage him in cooking the meal with me. To sit with him while he takes a bath. Talk to him about his day. Talk to him about mine. To read with him or play hockey with him or play Ramiku with him. And then to put him to sleep and fall asleep with him for half an hour, with my hand on his head or his belly, depending on where he needs it. And then to get up really sort of naturally and do a little bit of the work that I love for an hour, hour and a half. And then sit or roll over and do a little practice, yoga nidra, a little something restorative, take a bath, get in bed. That's a good life. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun, I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Mm -hmm.